Hello, and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Associate Professor of Sociology, Alicia Simmons. Professor Simmons is a social psychologist interested in the intersections of media, race, and politics in the United States. One recent project sheds light on subjects that include how race, video evidence, and public demonstrations can impact media coverage of police shootings. Professor Simmons also studies how the media's portrayal of race and crime helps to shape public criminal justice policy preferences and racial attitudes. She earned her master's and PhD from Stanford University, has been published in numerous journals, and most recently was featured in the winter edition of Colgate Magazine. Professor Simmons, welcome to 13. Thank you, Daniel. So happy to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. You teach a course with a seemingly simple title, Media and Politics. But the description isn't so simple. It states that your class will use a social scientific approach to examine the role that the media plays in American politics. Key areas of inquiry include the function of the media in a democracy, the newsmaking process, campaigning through the news, political advertising, media effects, government through the news, and infotainment slash satire. Tell me about a social scientific approach to looking at these things. So in thinking about what social scientists care about, we think very much about how society operates and we think very much about how people on the ground day after day operate. And so in thinking about a social science approach to media and politics, we start with the perspective of who says what to whom. Right. And so in thinking about the who, you need to understand media corporations, how they're structured. When we think about the news, people think about it as an altruistic information source. In fact, the news is a corporation. It's a money-making business. And those corporate drives have substantial implications for what the news will say. It's not only what topics the news covers, but it's also how it tells those stories. We would say how it frames those stories. So who says what? And then finally we get to whom and we have to start thinking about the audience. Not all audience members tune into the news, tune into political campaigns. The reason we start talking about things like infotainment and satire at the end is because those are incredibly important sources of information. They're not as revered um, by the traditional standards, but they are incredibly important in sharing information. So a social scientific approach to media and politics is primarily concerned with who, understanding newsmakers, news organizations, says what, the stories they tell and how they tell them, to whom, which audience members are out there, how do they decode and understand those messages. Hmm. So in kind of piggybacking off of that, you, you look at infotainment and satire. I'm guessing this includes things like The Onion, Clickhole, Last Week Tonight, those, those types of programs. How does modern news satire affect public discourse? 
So as we think about news engagement overall, the people who are most engaged with the news are going to be older Americans, right? As we think about these other sources, last week, tonight, The Daily Show, Saturday Night Live, those sources are going to be much more engaging to younger audiences. So simply in learning about what news topics are out there, right? Um, in thinking about the names, in thinking about watching Saturday Night Live, um, you immediately learn who is the president, who is the vice president. You start to also learn about other key players in the administration. Uh, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch for a while where Sean Spicer was played by Melissa McCarthy, and he would be at the podium and he would actually chase people on a motorized podium. It was hilarious. But it also told you something about White House briefings and who was in charge and perhaps gave you a sense that there was something amiss there, something interesting enough for Saturday Night Live to devote a cold open to it. And so as we think about these soft news infotainment sources, they put things on people's radar. And sometimes people will then go and follow up on those topics. There's an old bit on Jimmy Kimmel where President Obama comes and slow jams the news about student loan reform. Um, people watching that might say, oh, something's going on with student loan reform. Maybe I should Google that. And once you Google it, then you're opened up to a larger bed of a larger pool of political information. That's part of the battle is simply knowing what's out there. Hmm. You had a research paper published in the journal Social Forces that looks at whether exposure to various news sectors, local TV, network TV, cable, radio, print, and online news outlets, is associated with the viewer's criminal justice policy preferences. What did you find? So in thinking about that paper, I start from the position that all news sources are not created equal. For example, if you're tuning into local television news, that's the most widely engaged with form of news. Um, about half of the adult public regularly turns into local television news. You know what you're going to get on local television news. You get updates about the weather. You hear about local sports, local murders, to be sure. Um, maybe a little bit about local politics as well. That's it. Um, as we think about other news sources, national news, for example, they don't really do local everyday crime. You're going to hear about large terrorist events there. As we think about newspapers, um, newspapers have much more space than local television or national television broadcasts but they don't have pictures, right? Um, and they also are able to describe things differently. They can give you more depth on a topic than you would get in a 90-second television news um, television news broadcast. Cable news is a different story. Radio news is a different story. Internet news brings all of it together in an incredibly complicated story. And so I take the perspective that there are a variety of different news sources, and those sources are going to affect different things in people's minds. Um, for example, what I find is that certain news sources are associated with greater racial animosity. So what I found in that paper is that the relationship between news exposure and criminal justice policy preferences is complicated. Uh, that's going to be the answer to any sociological story. Um, but let me tell you how it is complicated. Um, so let's start with the premise of who. 
right? We have different news sectors. And what I find are that exposure to different news sectors operate differently. For example, if we think about increasing exposure to local television news, that's associated with increased support for punitive criminal justice policies. You become more willing to support things like the death penalty, three strikes legislation, trying juveniles as adults. In contrast, other news sources, for example, newspapers, they lead to diminished support for punitive criminal justice policy preferences. Now, in thinking about why that might be the case, it has something to do with what people focus on. Local television news loves crime stories. They love to lead with it. That makes money, right? And they're only going to give you the bare minimum in a 60-second story. In contrast, the newspapers don't talk as much about crime. And when they do talk about crime, they're able to give more contextual detail. There's far more space that you can put into a newspaper than you can into a television broadcast. So one, I find that who says things matter. Two, I also find that the receivers matter. We know, for example, that news exposure has no impact on non-whites' opinions about criminal justice. It only works for white folks. It's incredibly interesting. I argue that it has to do with contact with the criminal justice system, either by one's own self or by one's friends, families, people in their neighborhoods, etc., so I find that race matters. So in thinking about whose lives matter, it starts with the question that there are some names that everyone knows. Everyone knows Mike Brown's name. Everyone knows Eric Garner's name. But those aren't the only events that happen. And so what I did with my research students is we compiled this database of all of these cases of unarmed black folks killed by police. And then we charted out what the characteristics of those cases were. We looked for how newsworthy they were. And what we ultimately found is that it needs to be able to read like an injustice. I mean, that's the moral of the story. If you were a dissident that fought with the police, you're not going to get news coverage. If you're a dissident that had a previous criminal record or had been intoxicated, you're not going to get news coverage. If no one protests on your behalf you will not get news coverage. Those are the types of things you need. Protests are incredibly important. If you don't have protests, you're not going to get on television. You need to get into newspapers first, and then something else puts you over the line for television. So we find some factors that increase your likelihood of getting news coverage and other factors that decrease your likelihood of getting news coverage. For instance, we know that if you have protests on your behalf, you're more likely to get news coverage. We know that if someone files a civil lawsuit on your behalf, you're more likely to get coverage. Um, we also find that video evidence is so important, and it's particularly important for television news. If someone has a cell phone video or a body cam video of the incident, that increases newsworthiness. But then there are also factors that decrease newsworthiness. For example, if they were impaired at the time of the incident, they are less likely to get news coverage. And if the decedent resisted arrest, they would be less likely to get news coverage. 
one thing that I think is particularly interesting about this story is the type of injury involved has implications for a story's newsworthiness. And this was something that was unexpected to me. And what we find is that if you are tased, right, if someone suffers an electroshock injury during the course of the incident, they are less likely to get news coverage. And I think that this is so interesting because one of the first cries that come out when someone is killed by officers is, why didn't they use non-lethal force? I'll stop you there because I have a question about tasers. Great. I saw the <laughs> taser question. So. Um, well, let's let's go just touch a little bit more on the same research. And you have five specific case characteristics that you looked at when you did this. Context, event, decedent, officer, and flywheels. So tell me about those things and what you looked at. Absolutely. So we started from the perspective that every case is made up of a numerous types of single bits, right? And um, how do I describe a case? That's an empirical issue. And so what we did is we came up with these five categories. First, we looked at the context surrounding a case. And by context, what we did is we went to the U.S. Census data and we started tracking characteristics about the location where the incident happened. So we looked at things like population size. We looked at percent white and percent non-white, percent in poverty, percent homeowners, and in thinking about those kinds of variables, we were looking for what sociologists call social disorganization. Basically, some types of neighborhoods are more likely to experience crime. Some types of neighborhoods are more likely to experience police use of force. And so we were very curious about where does an event happen and how does that have implications for whether or not those stories are covered. The second characteristic that we looked at were the event characteristics. So here we moved right into the incident itself. And we started thinking about things like, how was the decedent injured? And we tracked things such as um, soft contact, hard contact, have you been hit with a fist, um, using a uh, type of weapon, right? Were you hit with a billy club, for example? Were you shot? Were you tased? Were you um, bitten by a dog? We were also interested in how the event was initiated. Was there a call to police or did police just come up on somebody? Uh, we think about whether or not there was a chase, uh, whether or not someone resisted arrest. With the event characteristics, what we're trying to do is get down into those moments. What happened between an officer and a decedent? That's what we're thinking about in the event. The third thing that we looked at were the decedent characteristics. So we've talked about the context where, the event what, now we're moving into who. And so as we think about the decedent's characteristics, um, they're all non-white, so we're holding race constant. Um, we do think about things such as age, for example, previous criminal history, was the person intoxicated? Do they have a history of mental illness? And in thinking about these characteristics, what we're trying to get at is that some dissidents are going to be more sympathetic than others. And so that might be a factor on which newsworthiness hinges. 
our fourth category that we looked at were the officer characteristics. Uh, here we thought about things like how many officers were there? Was this just a one-on-one -on -one encounter or was there a group present? We think about the officer's race and gender. Some officers are atypical. Women are vastly underrepresented as officers. That might increase newsworthiness. Um, officers of color, very interesting, might increase newsworthiness. We also looked for data on whether or not an officer had had a previous award or complaint. Very interesting. Now, one thing that I'll point out with the officer characteristics, police have such power as a source, it was hard to track down a lot of officer information. If that information wasn't released by police, it wouldn't show up in the news, therefore we couldn't detect it. And um, so it was a nice nod, a nice um, indicator to us of the power of police as an uh, information source and the ability to control information. So the last characteristic that we looked at is what we call flywheels. And flywheels are subsequent events that might keep the news story going. So for example, you have an event and then there are protests. Protests are newsworthy, so let's study that. There might be civil lawsuits, for example. That will keep a news story going. And so that's what we're thinking about in flywheels. You have the event. Are there subsequent events that might also help continue a news story? Interesting. You know, uh, kind of coming off that as well, and you talk about police as gatekeepers of information, and um, part of that, I was reading through the research, and there's a line that says there's no official statistics tracking police use of deadly force in the United States. That seems completely unbelievable. Have have um, you ever heard, or has there ever been an official line from some organization that says why? So there hadn't really been a lot of why up until then, or up until recently. Uh, the federal government has started inch by inch collecting these data, um, mainly due to outcries by myself, other researchers. In thinking about these data, the Washington Post was doing the best for us for a while. Um, you know, a newspaper sitting down and saying, we're going to track these things better than the federal government. Um, so that was a black eye. And the federal government has started doing so more rigorously. Um, in thinking about that data hole, though, it comes back again to this issue of who has power. Um, for police, it is not particularly in their interest to have statistics about how often they use force out there in the public. And so you can imagine that there is this official resistance to that kind of documentation. Transparency opens up different avenues for accountability. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of will up until recently to monitor such things. I'm so heartened now that we are starting to do it. Interesting. Um, and, and another subject that you've covered is, is, and you mentioned it earlier, the thorny aspect of news reporting when a taser is involved. Why does this less lethal weapon create narrative difficulties for journalists? 
So as you think about a journalist's work process, they rely on sources. A journalist goes to a source, they provide information, and the journalist then reports on that information. So part of the story is you need to have a good source to prepare that information for you. Secondly, you need information that you can quickly and easily convey to the public. Um, as you're thinking about how many seconds you have in a news report, how many column inches you have in a paper, it's not huge. And so simpler stories are more newsworthy than more complicated stories. And so if we take those two factors into account, we know that reporting on gunshots is relatively straightforward. Everybody understands how a gun works and why that might kill you. Um, people are less sure about the taser issue. How does a taser kill you? It Shouldn't it be calibrated? Doesn't it work properly? There's more explanation needed for that. And secondly, we can think about the sourcing pattern. So when you look at an autopsy about a gunshot wound, it's very straightforward about how that led to death. Coroners are less sure about electroshock injuries. And there are two schools of thought. Um, one school of thought attributes death in those cases to a condition that is called excited delirium. And excited delirium is this idea of someone becoming very violent and angry and impervious to pain. Um, you can imagine the Hulk, right? Um, and so what some coroners will say is that someone died from those circumstances. And then you introduce the electricity and they're already revved up and they died. Excited delirium. Um, another school of coroners say, no, that taser killed them due to electroshock voltage. Um, the fact that there are those two competing explanations, and as we think about professional groups, right, one camp says excited delirium is real, another camp says that's not real, and they allege that that condition is really a shield to say it wasn't the police officer's fault. Um, so that's the main story in terms of why tasers aren't being covered as much as gunshot wounds. And again, in thinking about tasers, tasers are so widespread. Because it's not getting news coverage, it becomes an issue that we can't even talk about in the public consciousness. So you read a lot of news, you watch a lot of news, you're like, you know, submerged in a constant flow of news. Um, have students or just anyone in general ever, um, do they ever turn to you and say, so, you know, you do all of this research, you, you read all of these publications, you watch all of these programs, what's the most trustworthy? What can I turn to? Do you ever give advice or do you feel like there is a, a trustworthy place to go for your news? Why, yes, you should go to PBS and NPR, dear listeners. Oh. Uh, it's an unexpected answer, but it is borne out by the research. Um, so in thinking about my earlier nods to who says what to whom, um, in the United States, we have this very small public broadcasting. And people become afraid of public broadcasting because they say the state is involved and is it really propaganda? Um, in some nations, yes, but public broadcasting in the United States is great. And in thinking about the reasons why it is great, public broadcasting does not have the commercial interest. And so as we think about things like Disney World, right? If something terrible happened on Splash Mountain tomorrow, you could watch ABC News, 
but it's owned by Disney. And so that can be problematic. They're going to have the best pictures of Splash Mountain. But one has to wonder what kind of information they're really going to give, given the fact that they are part of the House of Mouse. Um, PBS has no corporate allegiances in that way. Also, PBS isn't worried about drawing an audience. As you think about other news sources, I mentioned local news earlier, they lead with what bleeds because it brings eyeballs. So that way they can pay their sponsors to keep the lights on. PBS isn't worried about those sorts of things. I know their set might be a little more drab, but they're giving you the very best news. In thinking about public news consumption in the United States, about 2% of the U.S. public engages with the public broadcasting sources. It's not that way in other nations. I mean, think about the dominance of the BBC, for example. Um, the CBC. The CBC. Yeah. Oh, CBC Olympics coverage is wonderful, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, It's wonderful. Curling all the way, right? Oh, every day. And so in thinking about public broadcasting, when people say, what should I do? Public broadcasting should be your first stop. Now, not your only stop. Right. Um, I encourage people to be news omnivores. You should be reading newspapers. You can read them digitally, but please read newspapers. Read um, news magazines. Right. You'll get more in-depth coverage from a news magazine. Listening to radio news, watching as much as you can. The news Sunday news shows are really great. Um, I tell my students, be news omnivores. Read widely. Read things you don't agree with. Um, I watch a lot of news that I don't agree with. So, yeah, read widely. Start with PBS. Nice. Um, was there a specific news story or moment that solidified your interest in learning more about this, you know, subject and looking at how the news reports on things? I've always loved the news. I grew up in a household with the news, so I've always loved the news. And I think I realized early on that... There's a sociological idea called the social construction of reality. Uh, I studied philosophy and sociology as an undergraduate. And in thinking about the social construction of reality, it starts with this point that there's two types of reality. On the one hand, we have our experiences, and our experiences are incredibly important. Once you've touched that stove, you know that you really shouldn't do it again. So our experiences are so important, but they are so limited. In contrast, we have our vicarious sources of information, not as important, but the vast majority of what we know. Um, I hear there's a nation named Japan. I've never been there, but I hear that to be true. I hear that there's a White House and somebody's in there and they are running the world. I have never been there or met those people. Um, so... As you think about reality, it is a blend of things you experience and things you hear from other people. And if you take that perspective, the media has to be important, particularly about you know, public affairs, right? The news ostensibly is giving us the truth about the world so that we can, in a democracy, participate in self-governance and hold the powerful to account and debate issues. If you care about people's realities in their heads, 
Um, you have to care about the media. And for me, what do I care about that's in people's heads? I care about racial attitudes. I care about punitiveness. Um, these are things that people don't necessarily have a lot of firsthand experience with. We know that people live in very racial homogenous neighborhoods. They go to racially homogenous workplaces and schools. People have those contacts through the media. It constructs their reality about this world. So for me, if, if you want to know what people think, what they believe, um, you have to know the media. So that's the long story. And then, um, I mean, uh, gosh, what else would I say? I was doing this work before Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Um, this work go, digs into some sensitive subjects, I mean, that our nation has grappled with for a very long time and is still grappling with. Have there been moments where someone who has read your research or, you know, listened to one of your talks has confronted you about your work? Have you ever had any um, confrontation as a result of, of some of the things that you've done? Not to my face. <laughs> I guess that's what I would say. Um, so... I do talks, you know, on these matters, and oftentimes I'm on a college campus. I'm talking to people who are interested, right? Everybody's interested in the media. Everybody knows Mike Brown's name, right? So people are interested. People are generally excited about the work. Um, I would say more that it's my work on racial attitudes that people become a little more nervous about. Mm -hmm. And I had this one particular experience where I gave a talk to a group that I don't, I gave a talk and I wasn't as briefed for the audience as I thought I was. And so I was giving the talk and I was about three minutes in and I realized that this is not what these people had expected to hear and I don't know if they like it. Um, but I soldiered on. And I thought afterward as I reflected on that talk and their unhappy faces, you know, <laughs> I could tell it wasn't, they weren't enjoying it. Um, as I reflected on it later, I would have still given that information. I was really glad actually to have gotten up there and said those things. I probably would have delivered it a little bit differently, knowing, you know, my audience and knowing where they were at. Um, but I would say overall, people have been really interested in the, I'm fortunate that, you know, I do news. People think it's interesting. Um, so I have, I haven't experienced a ton of pushback on my media work, my racial attitudes work. That can be harder for some people. It feels like, and, and maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, doing some of this research can be overwhelming, I would imagine. I mean, I can't imagine reading about 111 shootings. And is it overwhelming for you? I guess, how do you process that? And I guess, is it is it hard? Of course it's hard. It's the worst. Um, you know, I, I have research students that work for me every summer, uh, Colgate research students. They're wonderful. I would brag about them all day long. And um, so... When I'm doing my hiring for my summer research students, it's one of the things I make it a point to ask them is, can you do this work? Um, I have friends that study comic books. I have friends that study, you know, I mean, thinking about media, right? You can study comic books. You can study music. Uh, I study this. And I talk to my students about, can you sit with this day after day? Um, I cry at my desk. 
you know, as I think about that which breaks my heart the most, Freddie Gray breaks my heart the most as I think about, you know, the bodies before us. So yeah, it's hard. But in thinking about the work, the work needs to be done. And I am here to do it. So yes, it's terrible work, but it's the work. You talk about uh, press making coverage decisions um, based on widely agreed upon criteria within a news within the news profession in general, um, and you break that down kind of into two processes: the story availability and the suitability of the news for the audience. Explain those two things. So as we think about journalists, they're not just running around smelling news every day. If you were to ask a journalist, how do you know it's newsworthy? They say, I can smell it. Um, that is not sociologically satisfying. And so previous research, Herbert Gons in his fabulous book, Deciding What's News, went and spent years following around journalists trying to figure out how they decide what's news. And so as you think about these two processes, one, a story needs to be available. And this comes back to issues of sourcing. Someone needs to tell me a story. And as we think about story availability, not all sources are created equal. Some are more articulate, uh, some are more engaging, some have more information than others, some are more easily accessible than others, and so on. And so for a story to become newsworthy, first, there must be a source, a, su a suitable, an appropriate source. As we think about sourcing in the world of crime, police are incredibly important sources, lawyers are incredibly important sources, um, protesters. Maybe, right? So then we also need to think about story suitability. So I have someone here to tell me a story. Is it actually worth telling? If the first part, story availability, connects a journalist to their source, story suitability connects a journalist to the audience. What is the audience going to be interested in? Again, the news is a little bit altruistic, but also a money-making enterprise. And so things that journalists think about in terms of whether or not a story is suitable, is it interesting? right? Is it important? And some stories are important for history, for self-governance, etc. They also think about things like, is it novel, right? I want a fun news story to tell. Is it simple to tell? Can I tell it with clarity and parsimony? Um, does it have good visuals? If it's a television source, right, that doesn't matter as much for newspapers. And so as a journalist is moving through the world, one, they need storytellers. And two, they need audiences that want to listen. As journalists move through the world, every single issue and event cannot make the news. They need these ways to sort through it all, to break it down the funnel to the final end product, which is only a small slice of overall reality, hence the social construction bit. We're at the 13th question. How can news organizations do better? So in thinking about news organizations doing better, 
it can't be all about them, right? They are embedded in these wider networks. I think something that the news needs the most is more funding. As we think about the way that news has been going in this nation, ad revenues are down, funding is down. Um, if you want good investigative journalism, that takes time and money. Uh, if you want reporters out on the street, that takes time and money. I'm terrified that people aren't subscribing to the news. If you care about the news, if you're engaging with the news, you need to pay for it. That's the only way that we're going to get quality journalism. And in thinking about those motives of, is it interesting? Can I sell it? If we can support journalism, that becomes less of a concern. If we support journalism, it can start focusing on different stories, not just about how well they sell, but perhaps the stories that are the most important for self-governance, for the direction of our nation. And so I think reporters would follow the stories that they think need to be told were they more able to. And the only way they're going to be able to is with adequate funding. If you believe in the press, you must open your pocketbook to support it. That was 13. I want to thank Professor Simmons for sharing her thoughts with us today. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu with your thoughts or ideas and maybe any burning questions you might have. I'm sure we can find a professor or staff member who can help to answer them. Have a wonderful week and keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.